Greg Wolf was Santa Barbara County's Teacher of the Year for 2023. I had the privilege of interviewing him about his project-based learning and student-focused approach. Hello, Greg Wolf. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Will you start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are? Sure. So my name is Greg Wolf. I'm a social studies teacher and a department chair at San Inez High School. Uh, I've been teaching here for, uh, this is my ninth year here, 10th year in the classroom. Um, I primarily teach uh, our dual enrollment courses. So those are um, courses through Allen Hancock College, where the students are simultaneously enrolled for high school credit and college credit. Um, so it's a great opportunity for them to get um, college credit and be able to work with them at a higher level um, without the pressure of a standardized AP test. Um, so that's cool. Um, so that's actually why I came up here. Um, my first year I was working in Ventura and they wanted to pilot this program. Um, and so I was invited to be a part of that. So um, I jumped at the chance. Awesome. Can you walk us through a typical day of teaching for you? What's a day in the life? Sure. So um, every day, my the mentality that I f uh, use and focus on as I come into the classroom is, um, first and foremost, I want the kids to have um, a positive and meaningful experience that day. Um, so the focus is always on relationships and learning environment. Uh, and then from there, we can leverage that and get into content inquiry and learning. Um, so usually a uh, day begins with the relationship piece. I'm meeting the kids at the door uh, as they come in, um, having those little personal connections, right? Learning about them and asking them, you know, how things are going with sports or whatever it is they're into. Um, and then uh, we have block periods. So we have 100 minute period classes. Uh, so I like to do a variety of things to keep them engaged and active. Um, so we'll begin usually with a warm up that is a student centered thing. Sometimes it'll be like a gallery walk, for example, might have them go around the room, look at political cartoons. We're sort of setting the stage, introducing the subject. Um, and then once we've done that, uh, we move into something that builds context. That can be an inquiry question. It could be sort of a collaborative um, group brainstorm using technology like Padlet or other apps uh, where they can sort of interact with each other online. Uh, and I do that instead of lecturing because uh, I want them to be actively engaged in their own learning. Uh, and then once we've sort of built context, um, generally I will move into um, some sort of inquiry task. Generally taking like whatever content standard we're trying to learn for that day, connect it to some um, higher level thinking question, um, hopefully connecting it to some sort of real world relevance today. Uh, and then I set them loose. So this is very much a uh, project-based learning approach, which is great because it gives them ownership of the learning and then it gives me the time uh, to really do the one-on-one -on -one with them uh, throughout the period, right? Rather than just sort of delivering information for them to memorize. For sure. So teaching is all about helping students learn. You talked a lot about the different ways that you foster their learning, but I can also assume that it's a type of learn as you go job. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a big challenge in the classroom, a lesson that you didn't know how to teach or a student that you couldn't seem to help effectively? And can you talk about what you learned from that? Sure. So through the years, especially with the dual enrollment course, um, you get a wide variety of students. Um, so, you know, in an AP class, for example, you have a very specific um, audience or a very specific group that you're working with that have sort of self-selected um, and they know by the time they get to me, junior, senior year, they have a lot of experience in AP, right? Um, and so they kind of know what the deal is. Uh, my 
dual enrollment U.S. history class, many students will come in from having previous AP experience. Others will come in um, having no sort of honors level experience at all, right? So you're playing to a white audience. And sometimes you have those kids who, for a variety of reasons, um, schools like not their thing, right? Um, or um, they have issues with trust or relationships or whatever it is, right? Um, so there have been times where I've had a difficult student that for whatever reason, um, the engaging um, lessons that I offer and the climate of the classroom that I established like isn't quite enough. So then what I have to do is really try to um, reach them on a personal level and sort of figure out what the barriers are uh, to their buy-in, right? Um, and if you can do that in a way that they perceive is like authentic, right? That you actually care um, about making the experience meaningful for them. And it's not just sort of a authoritarian, like you need to do this, so do it. Um, that usually gets them back on track, right? Because I think a lot of times with disruptive behavior, something else is going on that's driving that. And if you can figure what uh, figure out what that is, uh, you can sort of, um, you know, deflate the tension, lower the volume, because it's not really about me and them, right? Um, and then if you can establish that sort of personal connection, then you can leverage the relationship to bring them back into the buy-in uh, to some extent, right? So again, the way that I handle um, challenging students, whether it's, um, you know, engagement, motivation, or um, behavior, um, the solution is not in the content itself or the lesson design itself. The solution is in the relationships. Um, so I really haven't had much issue with um, not being able to get those kids who are hesitant for whatever reason to come around. You just have to consistently give them that one-on-one -on -one attention and find the solutions, which is really a holistic process, right? It depends on what each kid needs and what's, um, what's going on with them in the background. Will you talk a little bit more about this dual enrollment program? AP programs are sometimes criticized for being elitist or exclusionary. Mm -hmm. What does dual enrollment uniquely bring and how do you go about teaching it? Okay, so that is so the sort of equity, right, as far as um, the opportunity and bringing in, um, you know, groups other than those sort of seasoned, uh, you know, what you call like elite um, academic kids. Um, when you remove the pressures of the standardized test, um, but maintain the rigor, right, and the um, goals of learning with regards to not just content, but um, higher order skills, critical thinking, all of that, um, it's really a wide open playground that enables you uh, to find ways to make it accessible for all students. So um, when I was brought up here to pilot this program, um, very quickly, uh, myself and the rest of our department made efforts to um, increase enrollment amongst diverse uh, student population, especially kids who um, don't haven't traditionally even tried honors level, uh, but are definitely capable of doing it. But they maybe just have this mindset of like, well, that's not where I belong, right? Because things kind of end up being tracked unintentionally. Uh, and you get reputations, right? So AP has a certain reputation. So we spent a lot of time in the first couple of years, um, in particular, focusing on recruiting kids out of uh, the regular world history in 10th grade, um, who might not even be considering honors, uh, and increasing the enrollment of those kids. And then what you can do um, to make it accessible for those kids that just don't have experience in the level of content, 
um, but have uh, the creativity, critical thinking, and, and intellect to to to, to handle it. Um, you sort of do the outside of the box creative instruction, right? So the student-centered approach that I use, in particular with project-based learning, um, removes a whole bunch of barriers because you build in a lot of student choice, for example. Um, so you have these sort of learning outcomes that you want. You have the driving questions that you want them to engage in. But if you give them um, sort of project parameters and let them choose within that, they can find their own paths, um, choose paths to get at the driving question um, that are relevant to them personally. Um, and then um, you can, you really don't have to do as much scaffolding as far as like building in things like sentence frames for literacy or stuff like that. Because when you step off the stage of direct instruction and focus more on student-centered inquiry, that gives me the opportunity to spend most of the time in the period helping those kids one-on-one, -on -one, right? So it doesn't matter um, if each individual kid is at a different place I don't have to spend time like designing three different versions of a lesson to play to their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, we can, again, just sort of do it organically in the moment. And I think that one-on-one -on -one support is much more effective than um, sort of building in scaffolds into like set lessons, if that makes sense. Definitely. Do you have any success stories of a student who thought that school wasn't their thing, who ended up really thriving in one of your classes? Definitely. Um, I have uh, a student in particular who came into class as a junior um, in U.S. history and really was not motivated um, uh, by school at all. Right. It just wasn't her thing. Um, lacked, I think, that the confidence, right, to use um, voice in particular in the room. Um, first generation uh, Latina student. Right. So also um, didn't have that um, sort of family experience in like, you know, U.S. American or U.S. Um, academic, uh, you know, AP level stuff to draw on. Uh, but I noticed um, a spark right in this kid um, that the potential was there. So I really made a point of offering that sort of one on one support and encouragement as much as possible. And over the course of the year, junior year, I saw this individual really blossom, come out of their shell. Uh, and become one of the most dominant voices in the room, in particular when it came to, um, you know, like debate questions or interpreting, um, you know, complex historical topics or whatever. Um, and then her friends kind of all latched onto that as well. So you had this core group of um, Latina students who became the dominant voice in the room. And that really hadn't been uh, the dynamic in these courses prior to that year, right? So it was the first time where you saw um, a sort of non-traditional demographic uh, really take ownership of the course, right? And become the driving spirit of it. Um, her and a couple of the other students went on to uh, join ASB and became ended up becoming uh, leading members of ASB, like executive council. She became ASB president. Uh, and so just that transformation that I saw over the two years, which I don't personally take credit for, like it came from her, uh, but I think the environment of the course helps them find that voice that they already had, but hadn't leveraged yet. It's amazing to hear about stories like this, where teachers like you can foster environments that really change students' lives. But I'm also curious about the reverse, the student's impact on you. Mm -hmm. Has there ever been a student or a class of students that has really changed your outlook or philosophy on teaching for the better? 
Yeah. So, uh, so I think it was, so tying it back to that same group and that same, so, and then sort of broadening it out to that whole class. So that class of juniors that I had, um, we went through COVID together, right. Uh, and the disruption of all of that and the online learning and, and, all, you know, et cetera. So it was very, it was sort of disruptive to learning also disruptive to their social emotional stuff. And it was just as hard on us. Right. So, um, Having gone through that gauntlet together, I think the the bonds that I formed with that particular class um, was deeper in many ways um, than ever before, based on that unique experience that we went through. Um, and then coming out of that into senior year with them, where it was a return to normal, um, having developed such a close relationship with them, I was really able to see um the effects that that had had on them, right? Like a year and a half out of the classroom and trying to come back in and whatever. So um, that really tied into my considerations and reflections on um, what school looks like. Because when once we went online, like the way school used to uh, be done, like didn't work anymore, right? Talking at them through a screen <laughs> for a hundred minutes just no longer worked. Um, and then I think the relationship part of it and the inspiration that I got from them, right. Seeing them go through that journey of finding sort of empower self-empowerment in the middle of all that disruption was very inspiring to me and helped bring relationships, the consideration of relationship factors, even more to the forefront for me. Um, and while many people, I think, um, responded to all of that disruption and the apathy that that you saw among students after the fact, which is totally understandable, right? Because they were missing the, the social interaction piece, which is crucial. Um, I saw the opposite with these kids, right? I saw that grit um, and resilience, and that was really inspiring for me and helped fuel um, my evolution. This year, really, I've taken things a step further as far as fully diving into project-based learning, um, which is kind of, you know, outside the box kind of stuff. So they gave me the energy and the motivation or contributed um, to that journey. So in that sense, I can reflect on these kids and say that I helped them grow. They helped me grow. So it's really a symbiotic um, relationship, which is beautiful. We've talked a lot about project-based learning, but I'm not sure that every one of our listeners really knows what that is. Can mm -hmm. you go into detail about what that looks like in the classroom and how it helps the individual learning of each student. Sure. So the idea of project-based learning is rather than um, just sort of killing and drilling the content and direct instruction and delivering and handing them things, um, the learning is done through inquiry, the student-driven. So you give them a challenge or a task. So another way of, of phrasing it is problem-based learning, right? You give them some sort of problem to tackle that's in the form of a guiding question. And um, it's best if it's tied to some sort of like real-world application now, right? So you could um, take something like, for example, I did for my final project in um, government, uh, I, I gave them a civic engagement project. So the question was, um, how can civic engagement best be utilized uh, to bring about desired change in today's world? And the idea is that they're drawing on the content. So there are other ways that people can engage our political system beyond just voting. Um, and then there's a couple of layers to that, right, as far as you then set them loose. And so um, they choose the issue that they're going to focus on. 
And then in the project, first they have to do research, right? So they need to tell the story of the issue. So if somebody decided, um, for example, to choose uh, the topic of um, uh, like the environment, uh, they would need to then do the research of like environmental policy in the past. What, a thing, what things have been done, what things have not been done, how have um, citizens uh, tried to um, influence environmental policy and then they take it a step further, right? So that's the history part or the content part. Uh, and normally you would just stop there, right? Like I get it, I get the standards. I understand what lobbying is and I understand, you know, uh, polling and all that kind of stuff. But then you give them a real world task. So then you say, given all of that, the culmination of your project is now to propose a solution um, for whatever issue you've chosen. Uh, and then you build a call to action, right? And so then you come up with um, arguments for a public audience. So like, what can you do to help bring about this change? Uh, and you're offering specific solutions. So it has that real world application. The idea is that they're learning the content as they go, but that's just sort of the vehicle. It's not the end target, right? And so the student choice um, enables um, the equity of access, right? Um, and the fact that it's student centered. So most of the um, work is them doing inquiry. Um, again, that opens the door for me to be able to support them one-on-one -on -one throughout the periods um, rather than lecturing and all that stuff that they could be learning about um, as they're digging into the question they've chosen in the first place. Project-based learning sounds amazing from how you've described it, but it still, from my knowledge, is an underrepresented teaching form. Do you think that project-based learning is something that can be used in a wide variety of classes, from intro-level math classes to AP English? And if so, how can more teachers implement it into their classrooms? Well, part of it uh, is that you have to create a culture on campus that embraces change. Because first of all, change is difficult for humans, right? We get comfortable with things and, and, and to go outside of the comfort zone can be, can be difficult. And also you think about it, and this was something that was pointed out to me in my credential program. So I got my teacher credential at UCSP, um, great program. Um, they pointed out right away in the summer session, uh, the idea that we all come into, like everyone that's becoming, wants to become a teacher, you all come into it with a lot of prior knowledge and conditioning, right? You are conditioned from your own school experience uh, to see um, school as like, this is the way it's done, right? Um, and so part of it is deconstructing um, our learned expectations. So uh, even as a new teacher, like I bought into all of that sort of, um, you know, progressive 21st century learning um, philosophies, but I still even coming into my first year teaching with that spirit found it difficult to get away from just traditional like students in Rosen lecturing because it, it you know, because I had, you know, 18 years or 15 years or whatever, 14 years of that experience. Um, so our new, our principal this year, Michael Niehoff, uh, this was, he was a new principal this year, uh, as well as our new superintendent, they both champion PBL. So they've um, put a lot of effort into um, pushing that on campus. And it's really helped a lot of us who were kind of on the verge of being ready for that already especially um, after COVID, right? And sort of reassessing what's gonna work with the kids. That's helped push a lot of us in uh, into that area where we're willing to like try it, right? So I think there needs to be um, a little bit of a systemic shift where in the dialogue about what school should look like, um, 
we need to embrace that more as like, it's okay to not necessarily do things just because that's the way they've always been done. That makes sense. If you had the opportunity to teach a course to teachers and tell them everything that you just told me, what would be the main things that you would emphasize? Are there any practices that you think should be more universal? Any practices you think we should do away with? Mm -hmm. So social studies in particular, um, I would argue that we need to get away from um, recall being what drives the learning. Because, you know, it used to be that that was the whole point of education. Like you need to acquire information because we carry it around in here or you go to the library. Right. Um, but with something like social studies now, like, do they need to memorize every single fact? No, because they can pull out their phone and ask Siri, like, what date did this or that happen? Right. Um, and recall is like the lowest level of um, cognitive um, effort. Right. Uh, so if you really want to develop intellectually, you need to do more than just memorize and regurgitate stuff. So um, I'm in the camp that supports moving away, for example, from, um, you know, recall multiple choice tests. Why not assess them, for example, with performance tasks where they have to um, demonstrate in whatever task you're giving them um, the uh, content a knowledge understanding but going along with that, they're demonstrating development of other skills that are like real world applicable for kids that aren't going to become historians, like critical thinking, um, analysis. Um, we teach other things like civil discourse, uh, you know, which ties in again to um, our content area. Um, so I would push that. We need to think about higher order stuff, not just recall. We need to put always put relationships first. Because uh, I firmly believe that without relationships, you can't do anything else. So it's like relationships is not the only thing you need, but you have to have that first. Uh, and I think it's easy to, and I kind of approached it this way as well, thinking when I decided to become a teacher, I was thinking, oh, I love the content. So I'm going to become a teacher, right? Uh, but again, the content is secondary. So I would teach relationships. I would teach um, higher order thinking and assessing that. Um, and I would push for student-centered because I think that COVID and online learning called the bluff on direct instruction, right? The kids realized uh, during COVID where it was sort of independent learning, um, those of us that gave up on trying to lecture through a screen and just were giving them the student-centered tasks, they've now seen that you can learn without listening to somebody talk for an hour and they don't want to go back to that, right? And so there are better ways that we can engage them now. Um, so I would push that as well. And I would really push the the idea that we shouldn't do things just because that's the way they've been done before. So even after all those great arguments, I think some people are pretty hard to convince that this idea of recall in school is not that important. Has a student ever given a really outstanding project that's demonstrated a profound level of understanding and creativity that you really don't think could have been demonstrated on something like a multiple choice test? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so that um, like the civic engagement final project uh, that I described, that I gave to my um, seniors, all of them produced these projects that were um, demonstrating an understanding of our political system, demonstrating a, an understanding of the history of um, political engagement. Like, you know, how did people engage 
um, the political system and like the civil rights movement or the labor movements during the Gilded Age, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then they're also or demonstrating in those projects um, communication, collaboration, problem solving. Um, and we publish all of these projects publicly. So um, some of them do podcasts. Some of them have done like mini documentaries. Uh, and we publish those on like we have a social media page uh, for our department. We have a social media page for the school. Um, I'm actually building a website to house all of those projects. Um, so the idea is that they're also presenting these to the public. So they're authentic, right? And so none of that will you ever see uh, in a recall test, nor is a recall test asking them to do any of those other things, right? Um, the critical thinking. Oh, I mean, you can ask multiple choice questions that build some of that in there, but it's still sort of prepackaged, right? So I would say authentic critical thinking, um, the collaboration, because they do these in groups, um, and the problem solving, right? They're not sort of building any proposed like real world solutions or applications tied to the content if you're just testing them on recall. What's the name of the Instagram if our listeners want to check it out? Sure. So um, a school-wide um, Instagram is um, SYLearns. And then um, we have, for the department, it is SYHS Camp Social Studies. Uh, so you'll see plenty of examples of um, student-centered work on both of those. Amazing. So you've been a teacher for 10 years. A lot of our listeners are students here at UCSB, just like you once were. Mm -hmm, Some mm -hmm. of whom also might go into teaching soon. What is your advice to new teachers? What do you wish that you knew 10 years ago? So my advice would be to um, come into the profession uh, if, first and foremost, you love kids. Because uh, again, you have to love them to be able to serve them properly. Um, keep in mind that the content is secondary to that. And I am a history person, like first and foremost, as far as my own personal passion. So it is possible to, you know, be a content geek, but also um, bring that love for the students. Um, and the main thing I would uh, encourage people to keep in mind is um, bring that rebellious spirit into the profession as far as um, shed all of your conditioning. Don't let your mind wander into those like should, should I, would I, whatever questions. You need to follow your heart and you need to do what serves the kids that you have in that room um, and not worry about everything else, right? Um, so let go of all those fears of like, I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be giving them multiple choice questions, da, 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 da. And know that there are a lot of teachers out there that feel the same way. So what you need to do is seek those people out and then you sort of, um, you know, fuel each other and give each other um, the mojo to keep that going. Awesome. Well, that wraps up most of my questions. But before we end, is there anything else you would like to add? Yes, I would say that um, working with kids is definitely uh, one of the most rewarding professions out there. I've done multiple different things, you know, related to the field of history, worked in publishing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and coming back to the classroom was the best thing I ever did. Uh, and I would say that my personal feeling, especially after COVID, is that uh, kids today don't get enough credit, right? They get a lot of um, criticism for, you know, they're not motivated. They spend all day on social media, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, but I would argue the opposite. I would say that they're more resilient than they get credit for. 
Um, I would say that they transcend a lot of the like partisan political stuff that adults are caught up in nowadays. They transcend that, at least on my campus. Um, so they transcend that drama um, and they're a lot smarter than they get credit for. Um, so my hope would be that um, people take a step back and really appreciate that. These kids are the future and they're ready for it, whether we realize it or not. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thank you.